I'm so happy you stopped turning your podcast dial and landed right here. You made it just in time. I was just getting ready to tell a story. I'm Robert Peterson. Welcome to Notorious Bakersfield. Are you ready to hear a Notorious Bakersfield story? Good. You're here. I'm here. Let's get started. He had a big presence in Bakersfield. He had a big personality with an even bigger passion for food. He was a big name in the local restaurant business. Freddie Giovanetti's culinary career spanned over 30 years, from dishwasher to owning a chain of restaurants. His story is a classic American dream story, a story of business success built by hard work. That success story tragically ended when he was beaten and killed in 1971. During the months that followed his death, rumors swirled throughout Bakersfield. Was it a mafia hit, a lover's triangle, a robbery gone wrong? For over eight months, and for everyone not involved with the investigation, it was a classic murder mystery. It all came into focus once law enforcement began unraveling the plot. And I'll tell you all about the notorious Freddie Giovanetti's murder case on this episode of Notorious Bakersfield. Fred John Giovanetti, or better known as Freddie, was born in Bakersfield in 1913. He was the youngest of seven children. His parents were farming pioneers in Button Willow. Freddie began his career in the restaurant business at the bottom, as a dishwasher, then as a cook. Then he opened his own restaurant, Chef's Inn, on Old Highway 99, now Union Avenue. When World War II broke out, Freddie was forced to pause his entrepreneurial efforts to serve in the Navy. While serving his country, he continued pursuing his passions for cooking by being a cook aboard a submarine. Freddie served in the Navy from 1941 to 1945. He returned to Bakersfield and picked up where he left off. The first venture he launched after the war was Freddie's Circle Cafe at Garces Circle. The cafe became one of Bakersfield's most popular restaurants in town. He went on to acquire and operate a number of other cafes and restaurants. They all had one thing in common, his name. Freddie was always affixed to the name of each new venture Giovanetti took on. There was Freddy's, where 24th Street Cafe is today, Freddy's Circle Cafe, and Freddy's Drive-In, just to name a few of his early restaurants. He purchased the small cafe at the airport called Skyway House and in 1961 remodeled it, expanding its size and renaming it, you guessed it, Freddy's Skyway House. In 1964, he acquired the College Heights Bowling Alley on Mount Vernon and named it Freddy's Top of the Hill. This was a bowling alley, restaurant, and nightclub all under one roof. The building for Freddy's Top of the Hill is long gone, but at the time, it sat off Mount Vernon near the 178. In 1969, he opened Freddy's Hill House. Not only did his Bakersfield Enterprise include his chain of restaurants, It also included a bustling catering business where his services were booked years in advance. 
Freddie made his presence known in the local business community, but he was also heavily involved in civic organizations and institutions. He was a member of the 1968 Kern County Grand Jury, was a member of the Rotary Eagles and Elks Clubs, the Shriners, the Italian Heritage Dante Hall, the Kern County Sheriff's Posse, and the Chamber of Commerce. He and his wife, Jean, had two children, Freddie Jr. and Annette. By 1971, Freddie and Jean had become estranged. The 58-year-old entrepreneur was living with a 31-year-old Mary Warren, an employee at Freddie's Top of the Hill. On September 19, 1971, at the home they shared in the 2200 block of Oakwood Drive, Freddie and Mary were enjoying a rare, lazy Sunday morning. At about 10 a.m., Mary got out of bed to get a cup of coffee. When she walked in the living room, she saw Freddie wearing only a t-shirt and underwear, struggling with two men trying to force their way through the home's front door. The two men were wearing dark suits, and one was brandishing a hand, handgun and overpowered Freddie and began to pistol whip him. Trying to defend Freddie, Mary was also struck. The assault lasted only a few minutes. Neighbors witnessed two men run from the house and jump into an Oldsmobile that raced down Oakwood toward Hughes Lane. The assailants pulled in the parking lot of First Church of the Nazarene on Hughes Lane, where they rendezvoused with an accomplice driving a Ford Mustang. They abandoned the Oldsmobile and drove away in the Mustang. The accomplice left the church parking lot on foot. Freddie and Mary were both taken to the hospital by ambulance. Mary's injuries were more superficial, and she was released that same day. But Freddie's were more serious. Neither Freddie or Mary recognized the men, and both were unable to give a very good description of the suspects. The victims and the neighbors who witnessed the assailants described them both as being about six feet tall, both wearing dark clothes, and one carrying an attache case. Not a lot of information for investigators to work with. In the days that followed the attack, doctors assessed Freddie's condition as serious, but improving, until... He took a turn for the worse and was transferred to the ICU. Exactly one week after the attack, this assault and battery case turned into a murder case. On August 27, 1971, Fred John Giovanetti succumbed to his injuries. The coroner determined that Freddie died from cerebral contusions and hemorrhages caused by skull fractures. During the Bakersfield Police Department's prolonged investigation into Freddie's death, Bakersfield's rumor mill was in high gear. Stories swirled around town that the attack on Freddie was a mafia hit. To substantiate these rumors, outlandish claims were made about the types of injuries Freddie sustained during the assault. How did these mafia rumors get started? From Freddie himself, numerous friends and relatives said that before his death, Freddie told them that he was concerned for his safety because he had to deal with the mafia to book entertainment for the Top of the Hill nightclub. Now, I don't know if this is true. I suspect this was Freddie being braggadocious. He had a reputation for embellishing the truth. The investigation was long and protracted and took detectives to two other states, Colorado and Texas. After nearly eight months of investigating, the Bakersfield Police Department presented their case to the Kern County Grand Jury, and four people were indicted for a role in Freddie Giovanetti's beating death. Indicted in May 1972, 41-year-old Evelyn Larice Gallo, 
also known as Lori Gallo, 45-year-old Billy Edward Taylor, 50-year-old Julius McDaniel, who also went by Jack Tippett, but all refer to him as Julius McDaniel, and 47-year-old Howard Knox Day. A fifth person, 37-year-old Douglas Eriod, quickly became a cooperating witness during the investigation. Because of his cooperation, the district attorney chose not to prosecute him. Like I said earlier, the rumors were flying about who was responsible for Freddie's murder and the motive. I'm not going to get into all the rumors. If I did, this episode would be two hours long. What I will do, as best as I can, is give you the official version. What I mean by that is give you an overview of the criminal cases against those accused of the murder. At first glance, this case seems really complex and convoluted. The reason for that is because there's so many people involved. And if you gave the rumors any credibility and listened to the arguments of the defense attorneys, it is a complex case. But if you only take into consideration the case as the district attorney set forth, it's a pretty simple case. Here's the condensed version of events District Attorney Al Letty alleged. The motive was robbery. Lori Gallo, a former waitress and spurned ex-girlfriend of Freddy's, wanted to get even with and rob the restaurateur. She had been blackballed by her former boss and had a difficult time finding employment in local restaurants. The DA argued that Lori Gallo organized this cast of characters in a scheme to kidnap and rob Freddy of a reported $80,000 that he kept secured in a safe at his top-of-the-hill establishment. When Taylor and McDaniel went to Freddy's house to execute this scheme, things didn't go as planned. McDaniel brought along a 357 Magnum to intimidate and coerce Freddy to lead them to the $80,000. When it became clear that Freddy wasn't intimidated and resisted their demands, McDaniel began pistol-whipping Freddy about the head. Mary Warren was injured trying to defend Freddy. Realizing their plan was thwarted, the attackers fled, leaving the target of their kidnapping and robbery scheme badly injured. That's basically, in a nutshell, the district attorney's theory and argument about how this whole thing went down. Ariad wasn't going to be prosecuted because he was a cooperating witness from the beginning. Taylor and Day both made deals with the district attorney to cooperate if they pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit robbery. So that left Lori Gallo and Julius McDaniel left for the DA to prosecute. Their trial began July 20th, 1972, with Gallo and McDaniel being tried concurrently by the same jury. District Attorney Letty presented his case as I described earlier. The motive was robbery. Gallo was the instigator and mastermind. The robbery went wrong, and McDaniel beat Freddie Giovanetti that eventually led to his death. With Judge Borton presiding, the jury endured three and a half weeks of testimony from witnesses. Lori Gallo's defense attorney, Morris Chain, argued the motive was murder, not robbery, as the district attorney contended. And it was the other defendant, McDaniel, who actually went to Giovanetti's house, beat him, and left him for dead. Gallo was never witnessed at the residence. Defense attorney, Morris Chain, also argued the only thing Lori Gallo was guilty of was having a big mouth 
by telling others about the $80,000 Freddie had at the restaurant. After only a few hours of deliberation, the seven-man, five-woman Superior Court jury rendered their first verdict late in the day on August 8th. The jury found Lori Gallo innocent. And an hour later, that same jury found Julius McDaniel guilty on all counts. Two days later, after the verdict, Julius McDaniel, while awaiting his sentencing, attempted suicide in his jail cell. With a razor, the convicted murderer made two cuts on both sides of his neck and the inside of his arm. He was rushed to Kern General Hospital, where he was treated and released back to the jail. A week after his suicide attempt, McDaniel was sentenced to life in prison. Less than a year after his conviction, on May 17, 1973, McDaniel escaped from a prison vocational facility in Tracy, California. A statewide alert went out to law enforcement agencies and media outlets to be on the lookout for this convicted murderer and to consider him armed and dangerous. For nearly a month, the convicted murderer was on the loose. On July 11th, Law enforcement pursued McDaniel to Diamond Springs, a small community about 50 miles east of Sacramento. The desperate escapee avoided a roadblock and exchanged gunfire with police. He abandoned his car and exchanged more gunfire as he fled through a field. When he reached a home, he shot out the sliding glass door, took refuge, and held the homeowner hostage. While the homeowner and the escapee were in the living room, the homeowner's wife and small child escaped out a bathroom window. After two hours of negotiations, McDaniel finally agreed to free the hostage. An hour after that, police heard a gunshot from the home. When law enforcement made their way inside, they discovered Julius McDaniel dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Thank you for listening to this episode of Notorious Bakersfield. I welcome feedback. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for stories you'd like me to cover on a future episode, email me at NotoriousBakersfield at gmail.com. There's no space between Notorious and Bakersfield. It's all one word. If you'd like to advertise your business on Notorious Bakersfield, you can become a sponsor. You'll email me at the same address, NotoriousBakersfield at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Notorious Bakersfield on your favorite podcast app where a notorious Bakersfield story will be released every Tuesday. Until then, this is Robert Peterson wishing you a pleasant rest of your week.